Today, we delve into the challenging topic of judgment and shame, both as parents of autistic children, but also from the perspective of growing up neurodivergent. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. Welcome back, everyone. This is now officially season five of the Embracing Autism podcast, and we are working on wounds to heal. Yes, we just finished work to be done. Yes. Now we're healing. And if you did not tune into our live stream that we had last week, we officially hit 25,000 plus listeners of this podcast. So thank you so much to everybody who listens to us. That's amazing. We just had our one year anniversary on Autistic Pride Day and we hit it right on time of our one year anniversary. I think it was like a day or two before. So awesome first year. I think hopefully we can keep growing and hopefully have another strong year this year. So cheers to that. And if you're not listening to this at the right time of the year, um, just ignore all that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But today we're talking about the topic of judgment and shame. And we want to talk about it from two different perspectives. I think it's important to look at both like the parent side of things, but also try to be empathetic and understanding of the child's perspective. So we are basically taking into account our own experiences growing up neurodivergent. So Matt and I both had our own learning disabilities and struggles growing up and that impacted us. And so we just want to share some insight that we've learned from having those experiences because I anticipate that our girls will probably go through something similar. And I mean, we still have these struggles today. I mean, this is something that obviously from a very young age, we both grew up, struggled with through school. And then kind of come to terms with it a little bit older of how to navigate that world a little bit. But I mean, this is kind of us reflecting back on kind of our younger years and how we see it as adults. I mean, because now we have a different perspective because we have two young girls who are autistic. So they're going through their own challenges and we can shed some light on that. (laughs) Exactly. Let's just start off with talking more about the parent side of things first. I have found that there are a lot of situations where parents of autistic adults or autistic children, depending on how higher or low functioning your child is, you you may have an autistic child who is 21, 22, or you may have one who's two or three. It seems like the public doesn't quite seem to understand when there is a child that has special needs, if they don't visibly look any different than anyone else. A lot of times we hear that saying of like, well, what does autism look like? Because people will say, your child doesn't look autistic. And so we already off the bat are struggling with some issues because if our child doesn't quote unquote look autistic to that person, then they kind of excuse everything away in terms of any possible medical reason for their behavior and blame us as parents for just being bad or negligent parents. Right. They shift the focus from, okay, it doesn't appear that your child has any medical issue. So therefore, the parents must be doing something wrong. And therefore, either the child is spoiled or a brat because of something that the parents had done to encourage that behavior. I mean, that's, I mean, obviously not the case. But really, yeah, it's it's a difficult challenge, I think, that we kind of have to go through because you're kind of walking the line a little bit of pure judgment on anytime you're <laughs> out in public, mostly. I think the worst one is when your child is having some sort of meltdown in public. And it's almost always an assumption, I feel like, that people think that your child's just being a brat and you're letting them get away with it. Because if your kid is melting down and throwing themselves on the floor, and usually, at least in my experience, it is because they want something. But usually that thing that they want is usually due to like a transition issue, for example. 
a lot of times when this would happen for us or for me would be when I would be transitioning her out of her class and we'd be having to go home. So we'd be having to go to the car, get all buckled up and go home. She never wants to transition out of her class because she enjoys her class. And so a lot of people would think that, oh, you're just spoiling your kid because I'm trying to give her like an iPad or a phone or something to draw her attention away from the thing that she's fixated on in class. Because oftentimes they'll have something there that she is really interested in, like a bird or a duck or something, because they, they want to make the class fun for her and engaging. Right. But then and it has the, what well, is it called? Like the back kick backlash, effect? Yeah. Back, yeah, backlash. Well, <laughs> well, essentially also because at the same time, they were likely trying to transition her into the class in the first place. So they were using something very appealing to her. Oh, look, we have a bird that you can play with. So she was probably not doing great with the transition. They gave her something very desirable. And now we have to try and find something even more desirable to kind of top that. In to order, transition her Right, 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 <laughs> which becomes a challenge in itself. So I keep going back to kind of the playground. Our daughter loves playgrounds. So anytime that we have to leave, it's always a gamble of, okay, how are we going to do with this transition? Sometimes it works out okay. Sometimes it's kind of shifting into kind of the meltdown. I guess I do not necessarily blame the parents for making that quick judgment call because, I mean, before we had autistic children, I, I guess, was one of those parents where if I saw a kid screaming, crying, throwing themselves down the ground, I was like, oh, okay, that kid must be like spoiled and not know how to like go to the car or listen to their parents. So I, I mean, I guess I would be guilty because I didn't even think of, oh, there must be potentially a medical issue or struggle that this child is having. So, I mean, I was guilty then. Now, I guess now that I'm kind of coming into my own a little bit more, I realize that there are so many other reasons why a child might be having a meltdown. And it's not necessarily just because, oh, that's a bad parent and that child is clearly spoiled. The times that it's the worst is when you feel like you're getting called out. And that can be either intentional, like maybe another mom calls you out and says, when my kid was such and such age, I would have never let them get away with that. That to me is so frustrating because it's like, first of all, I don't know you. What are you doing? Like judging me and my kids and how we run things Two, I don't necessarily want to out my kid. So I, I don't always feel comfortable just telling everybody who makes a comment, oh, my kid's autistic, back off, because I also feel like that's not fair. I shouldn't have to disclose my kid's private medical information to every Joe Schmo across the street just because they're not happy with our parenting style. For me, I roll with the punches, almost like letting it try and roll off your shoulders, like, oh, this is annoying. But if you're not willing to, I guess, like disclose the diagnosis, then you're kind of stuck in this phase where it's kind of like, okay, I just kind of bite my tongue and just kind of keep walking, not looking back at any type of people judging me because i think for me it comes off that i'm kind of an overprotective parent i mean you can yeah (laughs) people definitely think we're a bit much (laughs) um and i think for some i mean i I probably am but i would say to some degree i find it is necessary yeah like elopement like people think all the time that we're being overprotective because we're behind them all the time i'm like there's no fence if we're not behind them they're going to run out into the street not to mention the struggle with like the spatial awareness of Mm -hmm. okay this playground ends here if i keep going i'm gonna fall so i mean it's more necessary to prevent any kind of injury than me just not being able to let go of my beautiful little child going on the playground but i I can see easily parents if i'm following them kind of on the playground seeing like wow look at that guy like (laughs) new dad like i mean (laughs) yeah people always think that i'm either a new parent or like really obsessive i remember when i met a friend at the park one time she was just sitting on the bench 
and she's got four kids. So she was able to basically just sit there and knit or crochet as the four kids were playing on the playground. And I'm sitting there because we have both of the kids, but we're split. So I only have one kid I need to keep an eye on. And I was behind my kid the whole time, following her everywhere she went. It had nothing to do with being a helicopter parent or being kind of overprotective. It's because my kid has those spatial awareness difficulties and motor planning issues. And I have witnessed her multiple times falling off of things, breaking things. The younger one is the one who busted her lip and broke a tooth because of how wild she is. So I feel like that's something that society kind of really stinks at is like not just assuming that people are terrible parents, but thinking maybe there's something going on. And now when I see other parents struggling, I have changed my perspective. I used to impulsively think bad parent or spoiled child. And now I've completely changed my mind on that. I think must something be going on. Right. Something must be kind of lying beneath the surface that I'm not aware of. Well, you raise an interesting point as far as like meeting the friend at the park who had the four kids and then us kind of struggling, like each tag teaming one and one. But it kind of raises the question, like, if someone was to ask us, like, who's your babysitter? We we don't have one. Yeah. I mean, that that's another, I mean, I guess a reason of, like, judgment. Like, oh, you don't have a babysitter? It's like, no, because of these challenges kind of with their behavior. Our babysitter is family when they, when they come over and can watch our kids for a time. But we don't have someone who is non-family that's able to kind of step in when we need them. And they automatically judge on that. They basically jump straight to the conclusion of, oh, it's because you're overprotective and you don't trust anyone with your kids. I'm like, no, it's because I can't find somebody who's equipped with the tools to take care of my kids. Pretty much everyone I know has very little familiarity with autism. Like most people don't really know what it is at all that I've met. I've had to explain to them what it is. Some people have never even heard of it. So to go from not knowing anything at all to being able to take care of my child and let alone two of them, I'm like, that's such a jump. Well, as I say, outside of family, the only other people that we have watch our children unattended, like without us there, would be like their therapist. But even our family, if you've noticed, they group tackle it. Like like we always have when we have them with family, there's like at least two to three people watching them. So they have at least a one to one ratio, if not more, like two to one per kid. So, I mean, even our family who's been around them for the four plus years, like they don't even feel comfortable like we do. Like for us, it's just like we're used to it now at this point. It's, you know, second nature to us. But to people who don't live in the world of autism, they don't really understand understand the unique challenges and how difficult and how much energy it takes. You can't take your eyes away from them for like a split second because something could happen. Right. This is not a like, oh, okay, why don't you play with your toys and I'll be sitting over here. It's like, no, they're playing with their toys and you're basically either on the floor with them or you're like closely observing them. This is not a, oh, I'm in a separate room doing my own thing and they're playing with their toys. It's not the same world that we're operating in. Yeah. I mean, our three-year-old is still eating things that she shouldn't be eating. Like she's still putting toys in her mouth. Little tiny things entirely in her mouth. I'm like, you are way beyond this phase. But for her, it's something that she's still struggling with. So definitely not something I feel comfortable just having anybody watching my kid. And the other thing that I've heard is that a lot of parents feel like their own family looks down in terms of like their parenting technique. Like I've heard people say like, well, my mom raised me and she's trying to give me advice on how to raise my kid. And she thinks that I'm not trying any of these things. They just make the assumption that the reason you're having this problem is because you just haven't tried X, Y, and Z. And we're sitting here stressed and frustrated because we're like, we've already tried everything. Like there's nothing that you could tell me that we haven't tried. But a lot of people, for some reason, and I don't really understand why, they just assume you haven't. 
Well, in a weird way, it's kind of humorous. I mean, I'll, I'll explain it as far as like <laughs> when they are giving advice. And sometimes it's kind of like, how can you say we don't have time to go down the checklist of all the things that you want us to try because we've already tried them and we don't have time to explain that to you because we're dealing with another issue. So it's like, we don't have time to basically tell them we tried that, we tried that, we tried that. It's like, like we wish we could just say like, no, no, we got this kind of figured out. Like sometimes it's kind of wonky. It doesn't work out great, but like, it's what we got to work with right now. It's the best opportunity. Maybe maybe we should do that. Maybe we should create like a checklist on autismwish.org. Just a principle and and you can hand it to them. Yes, I have tried this. Yes, I have tried this. Right. And that's that's kind of my thing. And that's why sometimes I do get frustrated like with uh, family or like anyone else. And they're saying, oh, why don't you try this? It's like, well, I don't have time to go down the list of all the things I've tried. Like, yes, we are aware of this option, but it's not. You know, I might actually do that. (laughs) It seems like a funny way to troll. Just like have a principle list of all the things we've tried with little check boxes and then just hand it to them. Well, I mean, obviously in the moment, it's not really like funny, but like after. It is funny though. Well, I mean, like. Not to us, but like. Not to us, but but I mean, like, yeah, because you're you're just thinking like, oh my gosh, like, yes, we know, but like, sit and watch and like, see how this kind of (laughs) runs. Yeah. So I think that a lot of times that sort of like judgment kind of gets to people. For me personally, I don't really have, uh, like, I don't personally get super affected by what people think about me or my parenting style, because I kind of assume ignorance in a sense. I'm like, they don't have all the information. They don't really know what's going on. So I'm not really going to bother with their opinion because if they knew everything, they probably would think differently. So I just don't bother getting upset, honestly. If it's somebody who's really getting in my face and being aggressive about it, then I might like kindly educate them. I don't out my kid. Like I don't say my kid is autistic, but I will say things that are a little more vague. Like I, I might be like, my child has a medical condition that impacts their behavior or my child has a medical condition that impacts their ability to respond to you, things like that. But I don't tell them flat out that they're autistic. Right. And that's a clue for them to kind of like back off. Like you don't know what you're talking about. See, I used to feel kind of like when we go to the, the park, I was like following our kids around. I used to feel like, oh man, I wish like I didn't have to like, kind of like chase them around, kind of making sure that everything's okay. But now I kind of have changed my perspective. And I guess my attitude is basically like, we go to the park for our kids. I don't go to the park to get a high five from a random dad because, oh yeah, we're both hanging out at the park doing our like fatherly duty. It's like, I don't really care what this other dad or mom thinks about me and my parenting style. I'm there to make sure my kids are having fun and enjoying the playground just like everyone else. So if me following them around, making sure that they're safe, not injured is fun for them. I mean, and they enjoy having us and looking at us that we're behind them. They enjoy it. So I guess like that's my reason for going to the playground, not for random person sitting on the bench. Yeah, making friends is bonus, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I think that since we did grow up neurodivergent and we had our own experiences being bullied or having to deal with the judgment or shame of our own disabilities, that has kind of helped me have a kind of unique perspective on my kid because I kind of been there. So I, I know what it's like to have people either refuse to engage with you, not play with you, or think something of you that you know is not true of yourself. I definitely have experienced that growing up. Yeah, for me, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a struggle. I mean, I absolutely hated feeling different because I mean, I, I'm sure most kids my age weren't really in my own head seeing like, oh, he's kind of like an, not an outcast, but really struggling with material that I was a learning. A dweeb? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably. No, I mean, kind of the opposite. So I mean, like, 
I felt like I had like friends because I use humor and kind of being like a class clown to basically kind of like cast a net to try and attract people because they're like, oh, you're funny. Like I enjoy laughing. So I'm going to kind of hang out with you. So that was kind of a, I mean, as I've gone through life and figured this out, that was kind of a defensive mechanism to try and accommodate for different shortcomings that I was having. So, I mean, I am absolutely terrible with numbers and reading was always a struggle. I would actually be pulled out of the class with like one or two other kids to be in a very basic reading group. And then I would still have to go back into the class. Like if we had like presentations, like book reports and whatnot, all the other kids were giving a book report on one book and I had to give a book report on another book just because I was not at that level of reading. So, I mean, that was the most embarrassing thing ever because you're giving a book report, you and one other person are giving a book report on something that's very like limited as far as the, the the literature versus everyone else who's more advanced than you. I had to necessarily accommodate with humor as a way to kind of survive, I guess, in my opinion. For me, my self-accommodation was actually going into like my own world. So what I did is I felt very isolated growing up because I had a really hard time making friends because I was very different from everyone. Mine was almost the opposite problem. Yeah, I was was, like so academically (sighs) advanced and like so above everyone else with like my maturity level that nobody really wanted to hang out with me because I just didn't fit in. I didn't really have the same interests as them. I was always wanting to like read or create fantasy worlds because I also like to write. So I was writing like books and stories at like age six. And for me, it was very isolating. And I felt like nobody really wanted to hang out with me because I was so different. I would always try to dive into fantasy worlds to kind of create another world for myself. So that was one of the reasons I got so heavily into books and reading was because I could fully immerse myself into that world and forget about the world that I was currently in. And I would make friends through the characters in the books and I would follow their lives. And I would kind of like not really fantasize that life in my head, but it would be a distraction. It would be something that would keep me occupied enough that I didn't have to think about the fact that I couldn't make friends in real life. Yeah, that never crossed my mind. (laughs) Maybe that's why I was just (laughs) too dumb to get to that level of logic to (laughs) go... And yet we attracted I mean, <laughs> each other. What What are the odds? Oh, gosh. <laughs> like yeah. somebody who struggled so hard with reading and somebody uh, who was avid reader, and we both were isolated, and we both had the same issue due to complete opposite problems. True. Isn't that insane? <laughs> and yet we're still we're married. Uh, we're we, still we, we attracted each other. What? Who would have guessed? Oh, <laughs> but I, I feel like because of that experience that I had, I'm like more aware and more conscious of what my kids might be feeling. I think sometimes maybe it could be too much because I might be anticipating a problem when there isn't a problem yet. But I think the benefits outweigh the negatives in that I feel comfortable that I'm able to predict some of the struggles they might have before they happen. And because of that, we can kind of prepare them earlier. So I can help them with quote unquote, like social lubricant, like coming up with methods or tools to help them in social situations that I didn't have for myself, because I've experienced the challenge with that. And now I've done a ton of research that they might not have had that knowledge. Well, see, for me, I guess, I I guess very similar to yours, um, because I struggled as far as with numbers and as far as with reading and not able to keep things in the right order as it is listed on the page. Dyslexia? Uh, oh gosh, well, <laughs> it's it's for that math and then whatever the other one is for... Dyscalculia? Yeah, pretty sure, yeah. 
But so I'm trying to, I guess, maybe overcompensate because what I have learned, I'm trying to teach like my girls. So, I mean, like I'm showing them like kind of look at the different numbers and, oh, look, you can add this to this and this is how they increase. And same thing with reading, really stressing kind of like, okay, this is how we read little, 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 because I know the struggles that I had. So I'm trying to give them a little bit more knowledge kind of leading to hopefully that they won't struggle with the same issues I had. Yeah. Like we're trying to give them like a manual to how to navigate life being neurodivergent. Well, basically, I guess the best way to think of it is if I could go back in time with the same knowledge I have now to teach myself back then, what would I do? And that's kind of how I'm trying to do it with the girls. I'm trying to see what were my biggest struggles and what have I learned that helped me. And this is kind of being presented to them. I think for me, the biggest challenge that I have is I know how being judged and shamed growing up impacted me. Like my peers were constantly judging me when I, even when I went to college, I remember I would come home crying all the time after I would have like my biology labs because I have like delayed processing and it would take me a long time to catch up to my peers. Like they would be explained something and instantly understand it in terms of like, for example, directions on how to complete a lab. And for me, I couldn't even get past understanding the directions. So it had nothing to do with my intelligence because once I got it, I was able to do everything great, but I could never get past things like understanding just the general concept of what they needed from me. And because of that, people looked down on me. Like they would give me these looks like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're that dumb. They wouldn't hide it. Like they were not discreet. They were just point blank, pretty much calling me dumb to my face. And I remember the shame and like the guilt that I felt through that process. And it wasn't until I found a teacher who decided that he would step up for me and volunteer to take his lunch hours for me. And he volunteered to stay late after class for me to help me figure out what was going on. He could tell I was struggling and he was totally chill about it. He did not judge me. He did not look down on me. And just the fact that he did that for me, like I still was not able to pass the class because it was just too difficult. So I withdrew. But the fact that he was willing to do that for me kind of changed my perspective a little bit in that it gave me a little glimmer of hope that humanity wasn't all entirely like cruel and ruthless because I had a really pessimistic view because of all my social interactions with people prior to that. But then I learned, I was like, there's good people out there. I just have to find them. So now with that knowledge, I know that I can tell my kids that in advance. I'm hoping they won't feel as hopeless because I can tell them there's a lot of jerks out there, but there are these gems out there and all you got to do is find the gems. No, I think that's a great I mean, point because obviously we try and push a positive image to hopefully help others kind of down the road. But I mean, you're right. I mean, I feel like a huge chunk of just the people that you're going to run into are going to kind of be the the jerks or the horrible people that kind of try and step on you to try and make you feel less than in anything that you're not up to par with. Yeah, I mean, try and yeah work with our girls to try and see where they can find good people and if possible, try and introduce them to good people if we know them. <laughs> So I feel like if if you anticipate that your kid is struggling with judgment or shame, a few different things that I plan on doing with my kid, one is depending on their ability, have some sort of open communication with them. If they are able to explain, you know, how they feel or what they're thinking, definitely open up that dialogue and have them understand and know that you're open and willing to engage in this conversation and be there for them. If they're nonverbal, you might have to do that in different means, whether it's written or through music or however it is that that child likes to express their feelings, but still find an outlet for them. You'll know when they're frustrated. We don't really always know why, but find an outlet. And that could be music or trains or whatever it is that makes your child feel happy. 
And the other thing I would say is help your child find something positive to kind of anchor onto. So if they are being judged, find something positive in that mess, find the light in the darkness and help them focus their attention on that light and project positivity into the future. Because a lot of times the negative spiral comes out of feeling no hope for the future, feeling like I'll always be judged. I'll always be bullied. I'll always be the outsider. And when we get into that like always mentality, it can turn really dark really quick. So for me growing up, that really helped change my perspective was when I realized it's not an always situation. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, if we kind of look at kind of like our self-confidence, we're more inclined to focus on kind of the negative image of ourselves versus all the positive images that we can give or have. So, I mean, yeah, definitely try and minimize, I think, the negative and capitalize on kind of the positive aspects that you have. And if your kid is on the more higher functioning end, there is this book called Big Life Journal. I think I've mentioned it before, but I'm a big fan of it. It's basically like interactive activities in a journal, but it's all growth mindset oriented. So it helps your child kind of process their feelings and process any of this negativity by journaling with different like activities and prompts. And it walks them through thinking through these problems and feelings. So I'm a big fan of that. I think that's biglifejournal.com. I'm not partnered with them or anything. I just really like them. So that's a recommendation there. I think that's pretty much all we have for today's episode. I hope it was helpful. Again, if y'all have any questions, feel free to email us at podcast at autismwish.org or leave us a message on Facebook or Instagram at autismwish and we'll be happy to answer it. And give us a like and a follow. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. All right. Bye. Bye. In this episode, we noted that sometimes it's best to ignore judgment and kindly educate those who attempt to shame us publicly due to our child's behavior. We also discussed how growing up neurodivergent can be very isolating and traumatic experience and how as parents, we can lessen this trauma by providing our kids with the tools they will need to succeed. Lastly, we shared how providing positivity, comfort, and hope to your child during their low moments can help create a much needed safe space. Tune in next time as we discuss caregiver burnout and answer questions such as, why am I feeling negative or unconcerned about my autistic child? Is it normal to feel hopeless, highly stressed, and lonely when parenting? And what can I do if I feel desperate for a way out? This is Embracing Autism.